Say your prayers in a garden early, ignoring steadfastly the dew, the birds, and the flowers, and you will come away overwhelmed by its freshness and joy. Go there in order to be overwhelmed, and after a certain age, nine times out of ten, nothing will happen to you. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 4. The Four Loves, Chapter 2. Likings and Loves for the Subhuman, Part 2. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favourite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly working our way through The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, the book he writes about affection, friendship, romance and charity. Well, how is everyone today? Well, I'm doing well. I got a big project turned in for my liturgy class. Uh, and so I've got Camp Allen on the horizon. Uh, that's the C.S. Lewis retreat sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Foundation. And that's December 3rd and 4th. There's still plenty of spaces to sign up in uh, at Camp Allen in Navasota, Texas, Central Texas. It's going to be a fantastic time. And I am going to bring there a bunch of my vintage books. David and Matt can see behind me. I've got a whole shelf of, uh, I think I've got eight first editions of the Screwtape Letters, and I just held up to them before the start of the show a British, a set of British first edition Chronicles of Narnia. Lots of other fun things, including a couple of British first edition Four Loves. So um, got a bunch of things coming. I'll take some of those to Camp Allen, but some of those will be going on eBay here shortly. So keep your eyes out for that. And uh, looking forward to to seeing uh, some wonderful Lewis friends and scholars and uh, and Lewis lovers who are going to get together in Texas and uh, and celebrate the reflections on the Psalms, uh, a book that we haven't really looked at at a retreat before. So that's what my week looks like. Plus, we're traveling to Florida for Thanksgiving at the end of the week. So um, off we go into the wild blue yonder. What about you, Matt? Who's heard of Sister Miriam James? I have. <laughs> oh, both of you. you the listeners, you couldn't see that Andrew put his hand up. <laughs> I put my hand up because you've been texting us about, about her this week, all week. Well, she is phenomenal. And oh. I heard her on Matt Frad, uh, the Other Pints podcast. Uh, the Lesser Pines podcast. and uh, Oh, no, 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 no. No bad-mouthing. No bad-mouthing. <laughs> um, the more humble, you know. The and, predecessor and, Pints podcast. That's exactly right. Uh, and I just fell in love with her story. And so I just bought her book, uh, Loved As I Am, I believe is what it's called, and incredibly beautiful. And so I was texting David and Andrew this because – three of the first four chapters starts with a Lewis quote. So she has the magician's nephew in chapter one in the darkness, something was happening at last. Mm. A voice had begun to sing. Mm. And then she quotes the four loves in God. There is no hunger that needs to be filled only plentiousness that desires to give. Mm. And then the voyage of Dawn Shunner, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. It's just an incredible story. And so Listeners, that was a big way of just teasing you. You guys should all go buy that book, Loved As I Am. And I hope to have her on this show like we were able to get Father Mark Mary. I'm trying to pull a David, you know, book inspires me and just go somehow get the author to come on the show. <laughs> no, Sister Miriam is wonderful. Uh, she came to San Diego for the Steubenville conferences 
And I remember I had to pick her up a little later than everyone else. I think her flight was delayed. Uh, and so um, it was just the two of us. And I went to take her to a place to get some food. And man, that, that woman has, a, has an ability to read your soul very quickly. It's mildly mm. terrifying. Mm. Whoa, well, now I definitely need her on. Isn't it great? <laughs> hey, I've been to Steubenville. The conference? No, the university. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic one. I, I, one of, some of my cousins have considered going there. When I was traveling with Phil Keggy, we went there, and that was one of the warmest crowds that I've ever seen. And, um, and Phil is always one to pander. And so the very first song that he played was, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. And the crowd went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about you, David? Well, I've been rather sick uh, the last four days or so. Uh, I think I picked up a bug from one of my nephews. And it basically meant that my stomach decided that it didn't want anything in it at all, ever. So basically, I didn't eat for about three days. Uh, but uh, fortunately, I'm better now. And it was a wonderful way to prepare for the Nativity Fast, because Advent is now just around the corner, and the Nativity Fast for Byzantines is about to begin. So you might be tempted to sort of splurge a little bit when you know a fasting period's coming up. This didn't allow me to do that. It just sort of prepared the way. <laughs> The best part is every once in a while I go and scan David's Twitter activity because, you know, he likes to get into some theological discussions. And I notice often his probably most retweeted thing or not retweeted, but subtweeted is like the man flu. He brings up the man flu all the time. <laughs> the man so flu is real. <laughs> I think I've seen you post that five or 10 times, actually. Some comment to someone about the man flu. <laughs> Oh, well, it was, it, it, it's been on my mind recently. But other things that have been up, uh, the, all of the Pints of Jack mugs are now gone. So we, we got a shipment of 72, I want to say, and mm. we sent out a bunch to the top tier and the second tier below that who subscribed for every year. And then we offered the rest of them for sale and in about a week, they're all gone. Wow. Unreal. probably... Let's reload that thing. Yeah, we will do that when David doesn't have a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get everyone hashtagging the mug life or the Lewis mug life or Pints of Jack mud life. Mug some shot. sort of take your mug shot. Take your mug shot. Mug and, shot. Yep. and whatever social media platform mug tag life. Pints with Jack. There Quite a few go. people have been sending sending me pictures, and so I will I will at least put together a collage later. That's great. Now, Matt, one of the things I was surprised that you didn't mention in your life update is, uh, didn't Taylor Swift do something this week? Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> it was actually because of a, uh, a, a, one of our supporters on Patreon that I noticed her album came out, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And what a hidden, there are some hidden gems in that album because she, she essentially has a brand new album attached to an old album. It's it's called From the Vaults, and she brings out old ones. And two of the songs in there, a bunch of them actually weren't that good. Probably a good idea to cut them from the original album. But there were two in there that were phenomenal. Would have been, in my opinion, the best on the original album. I'm mm. just, I, I text my buddies in a group chat. I said, hidden gems. Whoever told her to cut these from the first one needs to be fired. So good. <laughs> so good. Or, or maybe promoted because she's now basically got another album out of it. There you go. There Absolutely. you go. <laughs> One of the things that I thought about this past week, given the success of The Most Reluctant Convert, was about the status of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. Mm. Listeners might remember that we had Joseph Leconte on the show, because he was the guy behind the book, 
and the uh, docudrama, I think you would call it. Right. So I shot him an email and he said that episode one is in the can and they're going to be going back to England this spring uh, to complete the production of the rest of the series. I want to say it's two more episodes. And uh, if you want to find out more details about that, I put up a short post on pintswithjack.com. That's fantastic. Well, and this episode comes out on the 16th. Is that correct? Um, is that coming but, out this week, this Tuesday? No, it's one more week away. Aha. So uh, if you, uh, once you're hearing this, you can get into your time travel machine and go back a week uh, to, to see Most Relic of the Convert. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. It's in theaters through, the, through November 18th. So if you missed it, uh, just keep paying attention to Fellowship for Performing Arts. They've got great stuff coming. And I imagine that's not the last we've heard of this movie. No. <laughs> Speaking of tributing to our friends, what else do we have, David? Yeah, the, the main thing I, I wanted to mention today is that we thought about putting together a video and we want the help of our listeners. Mm. And this video is going to be in honor of William O'Flaherty, whose website, mm. EssentialCSLewis.com, and his podcast, All About Jack, are celebrating their 10-year anniversary. Yay! <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a little, little, long, little longer before we get to do that. So I'm really uh, worried, like he passed away or something. I'm like, oh, no, 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 sad. No. <laughs> uh, William actually was on our show last season uh, to talk about his screw tape book, but he also wrote a book called The Misquotable C.S. Lewis, and in it he debunks <laughs> many of the common C.S. Lewis misquotations you inevitably find on the internet. <laughs> and I thought it'd be fun if. We each recorded ourselves reading some of the more popular misquotations. And then after each one, we uh, put in a clip of a different listener shaking his or her head and saying something like, that's not Lewis. That's not uh, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> or how about this? You don't know Jack. <laughs> you don't know Jack. I, I, I was going to leave it to people's creativity as to what they want to do. Uh, but if anyone listening would like to be part of this project, all we'd really need from you is for you to send us a video clip of yourself expressing your disapproval at hearing a misquotation. Uh, and all the details will be on pintswithjack.com slash misquote. So you can, they can just, um, listeners, you can just do a, a selfie video, shoot a video on your mm -hmm. phone, mm -hmm. just shaking your head and, you know, furrowing, furrowing your brow and saying, that's not Jack, or <laughs> you don't know Jack, or that's not Lewis, whatever you want. And we'd love to have you. Uh, join in. So once again, where is that? Where is that located on our website? So if you just go to pintswithjack.com forward slash misquote, uh, you'll be able to you'll be able to find it. Or if 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 this, you're listening to this a while later, if you just go to the search bar and type in misquote, you'll find the article. Wonderful. Well, and and uh, William O'Flaherty is a great friend to this show. He's an enormous contributor to the Lewis community. He's done so many interviews about uh, with with people and essay talks, and it's just a, a, a wonderful friend. So I'm uh, looking forward to anything we could do to support him. Mm. And I, I would say his podcast is really what oriented me to stuff going on in the Lewis world. Uh, and because he very often reposts his old episodes, that was how I started hearing names like Devin Brown, Colin Durier, etc. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But let's get on. What's everyone drinking today? Well, what are you drinking today, David? Well, I'm continuing to work through the new Glarus Brewing collection. And today I'm drinking a classic country lager, which was a collaboration between New Glarus Brewing and Wehrman Malting. And apparently since both companies have female CEOs... They decided to call this one Two Women. Okay. 
There we go. So David's nice. drinking two women today. <laughs> Does Marie know? <laughs> all, all of my beers end up sounding very risque. Uh, well, what about you, Matt? What are you drinking? Uh, I'm continuing the Lost Distillery series. So I have three more to go. This one's called Gaston, which makes me think of Gaston every time. No one drinks like best Gaston. Gaston. He, he don't think like Gaston. Yeah. <laughs> well... I was hoping someone. I was teeing that one up for you guys. <laughs> well, Matt sent me uh, a, a bunch of little sampler bottles. And so I opened one from Wales. Uh, Lewis was of Welsh ancestry. And I thought, oh, this will be good. So this is called Pandaren. Um, and there are three different ones that he sent me. And, of course, I went for the peated one right away. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a very um, very high score on the um, on the, uh, the, the Michael Jackson book. It's... Um, Youthful cereal and hay. The nose is greeny brown. Um, <laughs> Sounds revolting. <laughs> smoky and rootsy. Not much much complexity. Also, the palate is um, root vegetable. Yeah. So this <laughs> basically says tastes like dirt. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it and it smells like acetone a little You're bit. You're welcome. So. <laughs> you know, when you start realizing what Lewis's real best book is, I'll send you the good stuff. <laughs> But I know you like I know you like second tier stuff, so I figured I'd send. Wow, you that. wow! I sent a text to David and Matt this week, listeners, just saying is we were having great conversation about the four loves, and um, this is, I think one of the books that really kind of really changed my life, and I think that it draws everything else into focus. So I think by the end of the four loves, they'll agree with me about till we have faces. So David, ch- uh, toast us up. Okay, well, we don't have anybody in particular to toast. Uh, So to all of you listening today, cheers. 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 Hmm. Don't tell my wife, but two women are very nice. (laughs) David, easy. (laughs) We got to bleep that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell this to my wife. Bleep. (laughs) That's not going to sound any better. All right. A little rough, but not too bad, my scotch. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. Well, let me give the recap where we've got so far in The Four Loves. In chapter one, Lewis divided love into need love and gift love. He also divided closeness to God into nearness by approach and nearness by likeness. And following this analysis, Jack warned us that when they're at their very best, loves can make divine claims. And if we acquiesce to their demands, they'll become gods, then demons, and then cease to be loves at all. And then last week, we began chapter two, the catchy titled Likings and Loves for the Subhuman. And Jack (laughs) began by looking at the subject of pleasures, dividing them once again into two. The first are need pleasures, which require a preceding desire in order to actually be a pleasure. And once satisfied, these kinds of pleasures die on us very quickly. And Lewis says that they foreshadow the need loves that we read about in chapter one. And the second kind of pleasures are pleasures of appreciation. These are pleasures in and of themselves. He says that these pleasures are much longer lasting and we feel like we owe the objects uh, of this kind of pleasure our attention. And these appreciative pleasures foreshadow a new category of love, which Jack calls appreciative love. So that was that was my recap. Do you two have anything to add? Anything else that you think people need to keep in mind? All I will add is this beautiful quote that summarizes it all well. Need love cries to God from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve or even to suffer for God. Appreciative love says, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. Ah, that's fantastic. 
Way to go. I was just uh, struck by, as I read this again, um, Lewis's great distinction that need love and need pleasures are about, are about me. Appreciative pleasures are about something else. So when I drink a glass of water, I needed that. Or when I drink a, a wonderful scotch, this is a really good scotch, right? So uh, the Even subject tastes versus, like dirt. <laughs> it tastes like root vegetable. <laughs> it's actually not too bad. It's it's got a little greeny to it, and it's it's warming. So um, I also um, am just struck once again at how helpful. Uh, I said in my book, Mere Christians, that C.S. Lewis, um, when I was a child, he um, inspired my imagination. But when I became a man, he saved my intellectual life. And reading The Four Loves is one of those things that saved my intellectual life. He taught me how to think. He taught me how to read. And so um, his distinction about describing and defining instead of praising or dispraising, I commend again as an excellent tool. Mm. Um, he also has a marvelous essay worth looking up called First and Second Things. And fundamentally, his point is when we put first things in the place of second things, the first things usually go wrong. And when we put second things in the place of first things, also wrong, and that's part of what he's talking about here, that love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. The natural loves should be in second place to our love for God. And when they get out of that proper order, we find all kinds of terrible things happen and just look around the world. So again, really helpful book to me. We all obviously love Lewis with a passion. But does anyone else notice that Lewis takes a lot of things from like Chesterton, Augustine, Athanasius, first loves, second things, first things is like disordered love, higher ordered loves, lower ordered loves, getting them flipped. I mean, after going to a Chesterton course, half of Lewis's analogies are from Chesterton. And then son of God became man, so man could be sons of God. Yep. Lewis does a great job repackaging truth in an easily digestible, understandable way. He's transpositional, not just about higher things, but he's transpositional because his, the library of his mind is so incredible. So remember that Lewis remembered everything that he read, and he read almost everything. And so what I find is when I read some of these old authors, I find ideas echoed by Lewis, and he's not copying, but all of these authors are kind of continually speaking to him in his head. I mean, he remembered everything that he ever read. So um, yeah, I think that you're right to, it's called, the German term is Quellenforschung, is source hunting. And you can find <laughs> that in, in you know, sources of what Lewis was thinking everywhere. But the way that he synthesizes it, I think is almost second to none. He does, of course, say that he fancies that he'd never written a book in which he didn't quote George MacDonald. So that's fun too. <laughs> So the text which we're going to be examining today is a little bit shorter than usual. So I'm hoping that we'll have a slightly shorter episode, maybe even manage to finally get it back under an hour. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, here's my 100-word summary. Today, we examine one particular subhuman love, the love of nature. This isn't love of beauty, views, or details of flora and fauna, but receiving the spirit or moods of nature something Jack says has been debunked by moderns. Lewis rejects the claim that nature is a teacher. He says that in nature we find what we seek, be they beauties or horrors. Despite this, nature can give meaning to the words we use about God. And if we never let nature become a god, and hence a demon, we can continue to have great love for her. So, 
let's get on to today's text. And I've got a feeling that we're going to be leaning on Andrew rather heavily for his knowledge about romanticism. I shall endeavor to help. I'll try to bring us full circle at the end because the last part of this just moved me. Wisdom. Wisdom, guys. The very end of this. So, to today's text. Jack says he wants to talk about two non-personal loves. uh, Two loves for things which are subhuman or less than human. And today we're going to deal with one and we're going to deal with another next Tuesday. And today's love, as we've mentioned, is love of nature which Lewis thinks is particularly strong among the English and, for some reason, the Russians. The English I kind of understand, the Russians I'm not quite so sure about. But anyway, love of nature. Lewis clearly has something very specific in mind. I spent many times reading and rereading this section. He's definitely got something very clearly in his mind by this phrase. And he attempts to explain what he means by contrasting the nature lovers he has in mind with two other kinds. And it's kind of funny because he says that uh, the nature lovers that he's thinking of would hate to go on a hike with the the other two. Uh, (laughs) Although he, uh, I should explain for American readers, this is what a ramble is. A ramble is a hike. (laughs) Uh, The first kind that they would hate is a botanist. And he says that this would be intolerable because a botanist would keep drawing their attention to details of individual flora and fauna. And the second kind of person would be a landscape painter. And he says that this would be awful because they would want to hunt out landscapes and views. And William Wordsworth said that this kind of attitude leads to comparison. And it's just Mm -hmm. pampering yourself with novelties of size and color. And according to the text, Lewis agrees with that assessment. So the kind of people Lewis has in mind, they don't care about minutiae of nature and they don't care about landscapes. So after saying what love of nature isn't, at least in this particular case, uh, what those people don't care about. He then goes on and tries to give a positive case. And this is what he writes. It is the moods or the spirit that matter. Nature lovers want to receive as fully as possible whatever nature at each particular time and place is, so to speak, saying. Interestingly, though, he points out that it doesn't actually have to be something beautiful. He says, the obvious richness, grace, and harmony of some scenes are no more precious to them than the grimness, bleakness, terror, monotony, or visionary dreariness of the others. They want to absorb it into themselves, to be coloured through and through by it. Okay, so that's, that's the first section. I have so many questions. Uh, maybe a good place to start is Wordsworth, because Lewis name drops him. Yeah. And he says that he's the spokesman for the kind of nature lovers that he is talking about. Yeah. Andrew, can you give us some background? Absolutely. And before we get there, even, this idea that um, the nature lovers you know, love the grimness, bleakness, terror, monotony, or visionary of nature. Um, this is not something that Lewis always had. Um, in fact, he, he owes it to his dear friend, Arthur Greaves. Arthur Greaves and he would go for long walks in Ireland in their native Belfast. And Lewis loved it when the weather was fine and the scenery was beautiful. But Arthur loved it when the scenery was awful. He loved to rub his nose in like the quiddity, the very quiddity of nature. If it's awful, 
Arthur said. Give yourself over to the awfulness of it. Don't try to make nature give you what you want. Don't <laughs> use it for your pleasure. Receive it. And this is a lesson that, that Lewis learned in his teens and extends throughout the rest of his life. In fact, one of his last and greatest books, um, Experiment in Criticism, he talks about receiving a book versus enjoying a book. The enjoyed versus the contemplated comes in here too. And so Arthur really taught him to let nature be nature, not something that was going to give Lewis some pleasure. Um, I think that the idea of the botanist, uh, there's a, a quick story about Lewis and his brother Warney uh, in Malvern in England, um, walking with Tolkien. And uh, Tolkien liked to stop and examine every leaf and greet every tree. Lewis and Warney liked to walk really fast and look at the big horizons and take it all in. Tolkien liked to amble along and just, you know, kind of spend his time in the particularities, talking about seeing the trees for the forest. Um, Maybe he found that entertaining. Oh, wow. 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 <laughs> That's... What's the opposite of slow clap? Right? Oh, slow boo. <laughs> hey, I was going to say hey. rapturous applause. <laughs> Why have we gotten into this distraction? Oh, dear. Okay, this is getting worse. I, re I, I recant. Please continue. <laughs> they found they stumbled upon George Sayer, who didn't know they were coming for a visit. And Lewis and Warney said, "Capital, you walk with Tolkien. We're gonna we're gonna stride ahead," which is what he liked. They liked taking it all in. Lewis also loved kind of creating landscapes in his mind, and he was deeply influenced by William Wordsworth. Now, the Romantics, Romanticism is a period that you can roughly date from about 1800 to about 1900. Romanticism follows the, uh, the Enlightenment period and kind of this naturalism that can explain everything. So the advent of science leaves the Romantics a little dry. And so they turn to nature for kind of spirituality. They don't turn to nature necessarily for God's spirituality. Um, in fact, part of this Enlightenment and the deism that takes over and transcendentalism and all of this stuff. There's kind of this assumption, as Chesterton said, that the Christian ideal had been tried and found wanting. You know, we have gone past Christianity. So they, the romantics, romantics look for a spirituality given to them by nature. And part of that is because industrialism is starting to encroach on them. So they kind of flee and, and, and turn to nature. And Wordsworth is the, the, uh, one of Lewis's top 10 authors of all times. And so that's a little bit of what you've got. The poets that you would recognize are uh, Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats, Coleridge and William Blake. These are kind of the big six of Romanticism. And once again, your period is kind of late 1700s, early 1800s, um, and that gives way to Victorianism in the in the late 1800s. So um, Wordsworth talks. Let me just read a little bit from from lines composed above Tintern Abbey. Um, he talks about seeing this vista, looking down at, at Tintern Abbey there in Wales at the Wye Valley, and remembering these beauteous forms that he had seen before, and then remembering how they had encouraged him in, in subsequent years, and then seeing uh, his sister looking at these forms for the first time. And so he's having this kind of out of mind time thing. Nor less, I trust, to them, to these forms, to this natural beauty that he beholds. Nor less, I trust, to them I have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, 
that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery, in which the heavy and weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lean us, lead us on, until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul. While with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. So contemplating natural beauty can give you joy, can give you insight, can give you wisdom. And it's no wonder that Lewis uh, titles his autobiography Surprised by Joy because it's a sonnet by Wordsworth. Surprised by joy, impatient uh, as the wind, I turn to share the transport, he says. So this idea that nature can really kind of speak spiritually and kind of move through you. Um, that's kind of what Lewis is thinking of here. Does that help at all? That definitely helps me. Can you repeat that one more time? <laughs> I'll quote you more tension. <laughs> I was wondering where each of you think that you fit in with regards to nature. Are you more like the botanist, the landscape painter, or uh, this other kind of nature lover that he's talking about? You know, I'm, I'm a blend of the, the vista. I'm a sucker for going to a top of a mountain and being like Lewis to get the big perspective and view and a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise. Did that when we were at uh, North Carolina for the retreat and Montreat. Mm. Like just, that's just my personality. Mm. Uh, but I also do appreciate both types of landscape. So I, I love nature, harsh, beautiful, tame, untamed, wild, uh, desert, beautiful. So I'm somewhere between those two, I guess. I think I'm probably more the landscape painter because although I'm there and seeing the scene, I'm busy taking pictures so that I can think of them and remember them. So um, I don't know. I think I'm an appreciator, but I, I want to capture the moment. And sometimes I have to look up from my picture to make sure to look at the thing. What about you, David? Yeah, I think probably the landscape painter is probably the, the closer one for me. And I remember when I read... Uh, Lewis's descriptions of uh, about walking, about the fact that he and his brother would power on, and they would go to a place where they could find a soaking machine. Yes, uh, a, a place there they would rest and take everything in. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't always necessarily be a, 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 a you know a, a complete vista, but it would be a place that um, where they could rest and just soak it in. Yes, and have a cigarette. So. Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to forgive me, but I need to read just a few more lines from Tintern Abbey. And listeners, I, I, I commend to you William Wordsworth's poem, A Few Lines Composed Above Tintern Abbey, uh, this marvelous Welsh, the ruins of this Welsh uh, abbey, this monastery. Um, and see if you don't hear Lewis in this and see if you don't hear romanticism. This is Wordsworth. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things all objects of all thought and rolls through all things. Therefore, 
I am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my moral being. So that's romanticism right there. I find all my morality and the spirit and the joy wrapped up in my contemplation of nature. And Lewis says that this kind of love of nature was praised the heights in the 19th century, but mm -hmm. like much else gets debunked in the 20th. And he actually says this actually isn't all bad. Uh, while he's willing to absolutely concede that Wordsworth is this great poet, he thinks he's a pretty pathetic philosopher who yeah. said some very silly things. <laughs> in fact, he calls him a philosophaster, which is a name for someone who merely just dabbles in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And he identifies two things which Wordsworth said that he thinks are silly. The first is that flowers enjoy the air they breathe, and therefore <laughs> they also feel pains as well as pleasures. Andrew, did he actually believe that, or is he just being a poet? Wordsworth? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't think, and I think that Lewis is right, I don't think Wordsworth thought about it well enough. And, and Wordsworth is not so much about the th philosophy of it, but the experience of it, and then expressing it poetically. And mm. so I'm not all that sure. I got to give it to Wordsworth, though, because he would go tromping out on the heath, and he would write literally thousands of lines of poetry and memorize them on his walk and then come home and write them down. When he busied himself with that sort of thing, he was at his best. When he starts doing what's out of his field, not, not too much to talk about. <laughs> Lewis has a similar sentiment when he condemns Freud for talking outside of his field. He mm -hmm. likes Freud for what Freud does, but when Freud starts to do theology or philosophy in which he's not trained and uh, very much an amateur, Lewis, I think, rightly objects to that. Well, the second Wordsworthian idea which Lewis projects is that people can be taught moral philosophy by an impulse from a vernal wood. Mm -hmm. Lewis says that if people are taught moral philosophy by nature, Wordsworth himself might not actually approve of the lessons that they learn. So, what, Matt, why is that? I wasn't sure explicitly what lessons he was referring to that they would learn, but he had the larger point, which made sense, that you can pull any lessons from nature that you want to pull from nature. And so he talked about how Christians, this might be a little bit later too, but you can, he talked about how Christians can pull their lessons from nature. You can bring your philosophy or worldview there and you can get all of those lessons. But then also the dark, the dark gods and their blood, which I don't exactly know what he's referring to there. <laughs> um, I assumed it was like our animal instincts or, or something, or actually that or, yeah, because he, he does refer to something later with instinctive nature around that. I, I, I would say it's the base parts of our human nature. Yeah, and, and he's like, we can go and validate all of those in like the worst sides of them because you can look into nature and you can see some pretty bad stuff in the animal kingdom, if you want to call it that, and things that are done. And if you just take an evolutionary perspective, you're like, look, they did it in nature, so we can do it in nature. We're just a part of that process. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly what specific things he was referring to there, but generally speaking, I think that principle, you can take the good and the ugly from nature if you want. I think we should also keep in mind that Lewis writes this after Tolkien writes The Lord of the Rings. 
And I think you can look mm. to the elves of Rivendell as kind of examples of how to do it right and look to Saruman as how to do nature the wrong way. The elves don't glorify nature, nor do they disparage her. They live in harmony with her and they celebrate her. And so these beautiful natural kind of correspondences that happen when they go into them, they go into the Lothorian or they go into Rivendell, where you have Sauron who lives on the edge of Fangorn Forest and only wants to use it to tear it down to and to, to burn the trees in order to fuel his machines. And so I think that Lewis is debunking Wordsworth rightly that, that it's I think Wordsworth didn't pay enough attention to Shakespeare, to his Shakespeare. Shakespeare said that that nature holds up a mirror to the world. And so that's what we should be doing with it, not not saying that nature's going to teach us things. Because there's nature red in tooth and claw as well, isn't there? Exactly. And the thing it put me in mind of was this passage from Mere Christianity, uh, where Lewis has been talking about the moral law. And he says, we have two bits of evidence about the somebody behind the moral law. One is the universe that he has made. If we use that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place. But also, he is quite merciless and no friend to man, for the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. Yes. So if we just come to nature by itself, which lesson it'll teach us is really which lesson we want to hear. Well, and remember that Lewis is too kind of, if if I'm correct, um, he wants us to see things more clearly. So this call of nature to look, to listen, and to attend, I think nature teaches us how to pay attention. And I think that's always going to be a good thing. Yeah, he says that the idea of nature being a teacher can be grafted in to this love of nature, but it's it's not a central constituent part of it. Um, the quotation, uh, I just want to give a little bit before it, because I think that is the key line. He says, uh, the moods and spirits of nature have point no morals. Overwhelming gaiety, insupportable grandeur, somber desolation are flung at you. Make what you can of them, if you must make at all. The only imperative that nature utters is look, listen, attend. And that's him. Am I correct? That's him saying that's what we're supposed to do with nature. So up until this point, he's discussing all these different groups that are either taking it to one extreme, to another extreme, going too far one way, another. And he's just saying, there's stuff we take from it, look at it, listen to it, attend to it, but let's not make too much out of it. Is that really what he's saying? Absolutely. You know, St. Francis is right that nature is our sibling um, and nature is a fellow creature, but nature is also desperately fallen. There's a thorn in the ground, right? And so nature should... should tell us a little bit about our spiritual condition, but it's not there to kind of teach us. It's there to reflect what has been happening and what what has gone on. And so I think that's part of what he's going for here. Yeah. St. Paul speaks about nature also groaning in travail. Sure. Uh, that uh, that it is it is alongside us insofar as it can it can re- reveal some things, but it itself is also uh, broken in some some respect. And Lewis says that that call to look, listen, attend is often misinterpreted, and then people set about constructing theories about God or pantheism or even atheism. And he says, if you want theology or philosophy, go to philosophers or theologians, <laughs> not nature, right. And not poets about nature. (laughs) Even worse. Uh, But that does raise the question, what is it then that nature gives us? And Lewis says that whether you are a romantic or someone more of the dark gods in the blood variety, someone who 
who sees the uh, brutality and barbarousness of nature and thinks that's that's wonderful and wants to embrace it. So whether you're romantic or, or the dark gods and the blood type, he says, what you get from nature is an iconography, a language of images, not just visual images, is the moods or spirits themselves, the powerful explosions of terror, gloom, jocundity, cruelty, lust, innocence, purity. And he says that he's not talking about using nature as like a simile or a metaphor, but rather using it to fill, or I think the better word he uses is incarnate, our beliefs and the in the words that we use. Uh, he gives some examples uh, such as glory and fear of God. He says, without nature, I, I wouldn't know real what content to give those words. And he even says that if nature had never awakened certain longings in me, huge areas of what I can now mean by the love of God would never, so far as I can see, have existed. I think that you also have to take in mind Psalm 19, uh, which was Lewis's favorite. Um, mm -hmm. And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So nature is in some ways kind of a reflection of what's going on in this great drama of creation. And I think that reflects in what he's doing in Paralandra, in what he's doing in Out of the Silent Planet, uh, what he's doing with the Fisher King, this ancient legend of the of the the medieval Arthurian Fisher King, is that the king and the king's health exactly corresponds to the health of the nation, right? The health of the land, and so the land and the soul are connected. And we are all creatures, and we're all reflecting not only the glory of God but the fallenness of all of creation because of what happened in the garden. So. Um, I think that that's worth keeping in mind. Yeah, I would say we're back to nearness by approach and nearness by likeness. The heavens mm -hmm. declare the glory of God. Nature declares the glory of God in a certain way very clearly. That's great. That's really great. But so can humans right? <laughs> in a certain way. But there's another way of reading it. Right. Nature doesn't offer a nearness by approach. Now, I say this with trepidation because so many people, including I'm sure many of our listeners, will say, oh, I never feel closer to God than when I'm in nature. But going to nature won't just show you closeness to God. And what they normally mean, what we normally mean when we say I feel close to God in nature, is I feel close to God when I'm at beautiful or large things in nature. We don't feel close to God when we see I don't know, a swarm of termites like I saw the other day. We don't feel close to God when we see somebody, you know, one animal killing another and, and dismembering it. We don't feel close to God when we see a Venus flytrap, fly for goodness sakes. So maybe that's a nearness by likeness, not a nearness by approach. And we mistake our purpose if we go to the ocean in order to feel close to God and can only feel close to God by going to the ocean. Nature should hold us up a mirror or should show us a little bit about the nature of God, but we should look through nature or what Phil Keggy calls beyond nature. And he gets that title from Lewis. We should look through nature to the to its creator. So, And that's what we should always do with creation, whether the creation is love or anything else, the natural loves or anything else. We should look through it to the one who created it. Well, and Andrew, after we've experience what you just brought up, the beauty, the nearness of likeness. What do we do next? Well, here we go. We must make a detour, leave the hills and woods, 
and go back to our studies, to church, to our Bibles, to our knees. Otherwise, a love of nature is beginning to turn into a nature religion. Mm-hmm. And then even if it does not lead us to the dark gods, it will lead us to the great deal of nonsense. I wanted to put that right there because you get the nearness of likeness, but then how do you get the nearness of approach? It stirs something in you. You see that beauty. Now you got to go back to church. You got to get on your knees. You got to pray. You got to do the things that go from likeness to approach. And that was a part of this chapter that just blew my mind. Absolutely. There's more coming too as we unpack this. But And the nearness to approach often will mean to turn from nature. And we've got a wonderful quote coming. Well, it was the quote of the week and we'll close with it. But to turn from nature to nature's author. And let's not forget our screw tape. The enemy is going to be busy, busy about nature and busy in order to try to turn us even just a little bit away from God. And of course, that's idolatry, to turn from God to the image of God, to turn what for what he has done to what I make out of what he has done. And that's always what the enemy is going to try to, try to get us to do. And so part of what happens with nature and, and part of what Lewis is trying to debunk here is the idolatry that springs from romanticism. And you mentioned screw tape, and I hadn't thought about it until now, but there was a letter near the end where screw tape says, get him to focus on what's real. Basically, if, if something is going to bring him close to God, let him just reduce it to bare facts. Mm-hmm. You know, he, you know mm-hmm. whether it's a baby's smile, a beautiful sunrise, whatever, reduce it to the bare facts. But when it's something horrendous, let him, let him see the worst possible implication of it. And remember the great divorce. Oh, I always do. (laughs) But remember the landscape painter, the painter who wanted to paint the light instead of experiencing the light. Okay. Remember that the goal is always to get us off just a little bit. And so it somehow becomes about me rather than about God. If nature makes me feel small, and makes God seem great in my eyes, then, then nature has done what she's supposed to do. If nature involves me in thinking about my reactions to nature or my, my willingness to capture it, the botanist wants to think about botany and think about the botanist's own expertise. The painter wants to think about the painter's own talent and expertise. But what the enemy wants to think, wants, and that's exactly what the enemy wants to think about us in response to nature. But God wants us to turn away from ourselves, go out of ourselves towards the other. So if nature draws me away from myself, then nature is leading us a good, healthy step along the path towards God. But he says that nature won't verify any theological or metaphysical proposition. No. She will help to show what it means. Mm-hmm. And the word means for Lewis is always huge. You know, the, the, sure. the mind being the organ of truth, the imagination being the organ of meaning. Right. Uh, and he's, he said, we can't come to nature and uh, regard her as a teacher because he says that there are worms in the belly as well as primroses in the woods. Mm-hmm. He says, as soon as you start any process of trying to reconcile those two or saying they don't need reconciliation, you're then into metaphysics. You're into theod- theodicy, you know, explaining suffering uh, in the context of there being a good God. And he says, while those things can be good, they, they need to be kept separated. This here, we keep coming back to define and describe. Don't muddy the waters. And he says that nature gives us uh, images, images yes. that, we, that we can use uh, that can feed our imagination, our organ of meaning. It's exactly why an icon isn't an idol. 
An idol is an end unto itself. An idol wants to receive our worship. And that's just screw tape trying to screw with us, right? An icon wants us to look through the icon to the silent reality behind, right? If an icon helps me to gaze into the gaze of God, if it accurately represents some little bit of God's heart towards me, then an icon is doing its purpose. But an icon is doing its purpose when I forget the icon and I experience the living presence of Christ. An idol will never go past itself. An idol is a doorstop, right? Mm -hmm. And an icon is a window. Looking at, looking along. Exactly. Exactly. Looking at and looking along, it's meditation in a tool shed. What do they teach in schools these days? And so if nature will teach us to look through her and see God's handiwork, or even to look through her and see our humanity's fallenness, all creation's fallenness, if we see cruelty in nature and realize that we screwed things up and God will someday set things to right and bring a new heaven and a new earth, then nature is doing its job. And remember that when nature starts doing its job and we start getting in good relationship to that, screw tape's going to get angry and screw tape's going to try and mess that up, get things off, get things in bad proportion. And that's what you see all the time. And that very neatly takes us to the final section, because Lewis ends this discourse on the love of nature by saying that although love of nature needs to be chastened and needs to be limited, we don't have to surrender it to the 20th century debunkers. Mm -hmm. Our journey to God, while helped to some degree uh, by nature, and for some people it's utterly indispensable, it will necessarily involve a transition from nature to the ugly little church in a poor part of London. Uh, in the text, that's what it's referring to when it talks about an East End parish. He writes, Nature cannot satisfy the desires she arouses, nor answer theological questions, nor sanctify us. And he says that love of nature can actually continue to help us, particularly if we have kept our love of nature in proportion. If it's not set up as a god, it won't become a demon, and therefore it'll remain true and authentic love. And this is something which Lewis claims that the poets fail to do. Uh, nature dies on those who try to live for a love of nature. Coleridge ended by being insensible to her. Wordsworth by lamenting that the glory had passed away. And remember what Lucy says at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Aslan tells her that she'll never come back to Narnia and everybody else despairs, but Lucy, as usual, sees through things. And she says... Aslan, it isn't you, it isn't Narnia, it's you. How can we and how can we possibly live if we won't ever meet you? And of course, Aslan reminds her that that he will that they will meet uh, meet him. But you'll meet me because I have another name there, and I brought you into Narnia, or I brought you into nature so that you can learn my name, right? And so it's all about him. And when nature marshals us to him, it's doing its job. When it does anything else, it's a tool of the enemy. And, and this was the part that started to blow my mind, because David, I think when you mentioned it would become a demon, there's one little thing you didn't state that he, I, he wrote, demons never keep their promises. Yeah, I should have included that. That's a great line. <laughs> it's true. That, to me, was like the core thesis of this. It's the nature became a god, thus became a demon, 
and it doesn't keep its promise. It dies on those who try to live for the love of nature. They can't retain what nature offers because they're they're using it improperly, not using it in the way that Andrew you just described five minutes ago, which was a beautiful way to to do it. And it made me think of so many. He's using this all in love of nature, but it made me think of everything else that we turn into gods that thus become demons, like sexual lust, like food or gluttony, alcohol, drunkenness. And what happens? We go to them assuming they're going to give us comfort, validation, pleasure, happiness, joy, and it never keeps its promises. And it makes me think of Chesterton, who wrote that Christianity saved paganism from itself. He was a big believer. He, he actually says if he wasn't a Christian, he would have been a pagan because they get a lot right, this beauty of nature, but they take it to the extreme, to that idol worship, and then it it just, it, it falls short. It needed the boundaries of Christianity on what, on how far you go with nature. And so I think Lewis is bringing all this in. And when I was reading this, I was like, oh, I'm loving this. And it made me think of this one tweet of this one gentleman that I've followed for a long time on Twitter, a wonderful Catholic person. Uh, He wrote, what sex, drugs, and alcohol promised me, Jesus and the church gave me. Well, and remember, love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. Love (laughs) or nature or anything else becomes godlike when it turns from itself. To be a demon is to turn inward. We learned that from Screwtape. To be godlike or loving is to turn outward. And so love, nature, anything in our lives will become godlike when it turns us from ourselves and will become demonic when it turns us inward. And I think that that's one of the great points about this chapter. And although it's been difficult and rough going, I'm glad that this, this chapter and this introduction start us off in this book. And that's rather nice timing because I hear the last bell. <laughs> Thanks to all of our listeners, Patreon supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, and Rowdy. As always, please follow us on social media. Check out our website, pintsofjack.com. The amount of material that is going up there has been increasing rapidly, and it's also the place where you can pick up the merchandise, t-shirts, and glasses. But as I said in the intro... All of the coffee mugs are gone until we do another run, which I think will probably be next season. But if you've been enjoying the season so far, uh, please feel free to share it with a friend and, who knows, maybe start a discussion group. I just started uh, the planning for a new discussion group here in Wisconsin in the new year. So... If David doesn't have enough things going on in his life. (laughs) Oh, it's like being a parent's easy now. I've got all that nailed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a gl- glorious a hour to spend with you all we actually kept it under under an hour as long as we finish up so please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in cheers cheers cheers, cheers.